was actually. I thought, I thought, I thought we were gonna, for one thing, I thought we were gonna have a little like for a proprietary chit chat, you know? We could still. We could still. We could, we could, we could. You could just cut it all out. Yeah. You could. Well, I know exactly. Yeah. The beginning know, chit chat is that we're going to do our best. I know how you edit. We are going to do our best. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's do all much that we edits. promise, and um, yeah, sometimes we deliver. <laughs> sometimes we deliver. You know, I only just realized that I should on be using best. a compressor on our voices. That's probably something that, like, day one, we should have been doing. But I've always just been like manually going through and being like, "This part's too loud," and changing it automatically. And then I just saw someone being like, "I don't know how you do that." I, I feel like uh, very early on, we were trying to learn <laughs> some of mm. the very basic ins and outs of Audacity. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were like, I don't know what, I can't even remember what kind of effects we were trying to put on it. Maybe you yeah. do, I don't know. But like, I yeah. very quickly gave up that malarkey. I'm like, yeah, I don't I really I need to take a little bit off the high and a little bit off the low. And like, <laughs> like, this was like, back when we would put like sound, not sound, not like sound effects or something, but we'd put in like sound bites. We talked about like an X-Files <laughs> episode, we'd put something in. It's too much yeah. like hard work. It is, yeah. I never really settled on a good program for ripping audio from YouTube, so I had to find uh, and like find the right one to use every time. <laughs> I don't know, you know, download. Pain it. in the ass. It's always a pain yeah. in the ass. What I was going to ask you before I just impulsively hit record, uh, <laughs> you have a different. I have the fucking the verso copy of this book. Oh, yeah. Did your copy have just an insane amount of typos, or is that a verso thing? I found only one typo. Okay, but then I'm not. I'm not. Uh... No, actually, no. I am quite. I, I am quite. I do. Rec- I do. I was about to say, like, I'm. I'm not the kind of reader that would notice these kind of things. But actually, I think my my slowness with reading re- leads me to read more. I was about to say read more slowly, read more carefully, <laughs> and I do then see yeah. typos, and yeah. um, I get confused by. I don't know. I recognize my confusion and then have to stop yeah. and work out whether it's coming from a typo or somewhere else. <laughs> or somewhere else. Well, and the reason I mentioned it is because I there are a fucking ton in my copy. And then I went and looked at like reviews for it on Amazon. And there are all these one-star reviews. And I was like, oh, these are just going to be like, you know, yeah, Walter Rodney hates white people, anti-white Walter Rodney. But it's all people being like, I guess when Verso first printed this, <laughs> it was like, people were like, Pages 70 to 180 were missing from the copy. <laughs> I was like, well, I actually got myself lucky then. <laughs> yeah, at least yours was readable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Uh-huh. Um, I love those reviews. Oh, well, what I thought you were going to do was say it's some kind of view, review where it's like, excellent book, but uh, yeah. three or four typos, one star. Kind of thing. That was pretty much what they were. They yeah. were like, everybody read this book, but fuck you first. So, yeah. so what are you going to do? I don't know how you mess it up when you just control c control v yeah. i don't know anything about publishing so you know there you go <laughs> um i don't i don't have any preamble dan except to say that for the listeners tomorrow for you and i saturday tomorrow would also be saturday for the listeners it's bean day for me dan officially oh, it's bean day it's bean day i usually okay. everybody at the allotment says do do your beans and garlic on guy fox day no way i can't be bothered with that you know me i'm a week before everybody else it's gonna be bean day Got all my beans saved up here. I'm gonna go get some garlic. Got my elephant garlic that I saved. So, you know, things are looking up. It's bean what? day. I'm I'm glad you shared this with me. One because like <laughs> clearly this is a very scientific based piece of um, yes <laughs> piece of horticultural knowledge. And that I want um, my beans in first. <laughs> <laughs> 
But also it's been on my mind that I should do something with some broad beans and now I know. <laughs> Saturday's the day. Or maybe I'll do it on Friday. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, today I should do something with beans. Hmm. Hmm. I did. I put in my cover crops a couple of weeks ago. It's the first time I've done cover crops, which I'm stoked about. So the official bean day was a couple of weeks ago because I put in some field beans. Oh, okay. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I feel like I, I was beginning to get the impression that Bean Day just referred to all autumn <laughs> crops you were going to plant of any sort. It it does because I will be doing no more plants. I'm just going to go on to like beans. You know, exactly, yeah. I'm, I mean, I have a very large bed planned out for just beans that I'm never going to eat. But um, I'm also going to go to you know the organic store and just load up on a fucking ton of garlic and just you know take that. So. That should be good. Also, I, it's very funny. I forgot about this. Bean Day always lines up with our SoundCloud renewal, which is very funny. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm always Let like, fine. I have no money. can't buy my beans. Anyways, what are you going to do? Um, that's all my preamble. I got nothing else. Right. And I think that we actually have quite a bit to get through today, which, yeah. if all goes according to plan. So get right to it. <laughs> if we do our best. If we do our best. Well, yeah, we'll see. Uh, okay. Tell me, this tell me, this huh tell me what we read I, I i can tell you what we read let's mm-hmm. see well i was what i was going to do is go through and read out the names of all the chapters we read they're way too long we read from walter rodney's how europe underdeveloped africa um it's been something that's been on my mind potentially to read for the show for a while and then at the london anarchist book fair a couple weeks ago i just saw a cheap copy sat somewhere and i was like yeah go on okay let's get it i would actually like to read this um the chapters that we read were the middle bits um, and <laughs> the middle bits. Well, you know what I actually started I mean, to do? Sometimes we read the beginning and the end. So this time we figured we read the middle <laughs> of the book. We were going goes. to read the beginning and <laughs> we the were... end. I started reading the beginning and I uh, didn't get on with it very well. I had some oh, criticisms that actually I think will wind up coming up in here. But the reasons we read chapters three, four, and five were because it um, kind of ties in with one of our bugbears that's the phrase, which is the origin of capitalism and the transition debate and stuff like this. And Rodney's thesis in these chapters is basically how the African continent and the exploitation of Africa um, served to develop capitalism. And then eventually, and you know, that was kind of in the pre-colonial times. And then eventually, um, up until the present day, even though this was written in 72 or something like that, um, serve as a vital point of maintenance for capitalism. Um, and he kind of in studying that kind of, you know, development and history, he kind of comes to the conclusion that, um, there's this really interesting dialectical dance going on with the development of capitalism in Europe and the underdevelopment of, uh, Africa in general, which we'll get to, but, um, I dug it. I thought it was very good. I speed read through the last bits today, so I feel very qualified to uh, <laughs> to give my thoughts. But... No more, more or less qualified than ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I am actually, Dan, quite excited to hear what you thought about it. Because um, Origin of Capitalism, we're back to it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I found it very readable, which is always um, the first order that I want to give to a book if it's... Uh, <laughs> If I find it easy to consume, which this definitely is, um, it also exposed my ignorance on a lot of these topics. Um, primarily, I really appreciated um, how it lays out the chronology very clearly. Um, and there are also some 
very clearly stated theses, which I guess we'll work through as we go through the episode. Um, so the the theory is laid out very clearly. It's um, backed up by a lot of evidence, and also it's delivered in a, in a very consumable way. Um, yeah, we'll get on to uh, sort of the ignorance exposed in me around what I already knew about these topics. Um, obviously, the idea of colonialism and imperialism um, is an important piece of language in political theory writ large, but also has a particular bearing on uh, Marxist analysis of at least certain phases of capitalism. Um, and so to get a kind of like uh, an expert non-dogmatic description of how um, the sort of colonial phase of capitalism was distinct and, but also how it sort of, um, uh developed out of the sort of previous transitionary phase um yeah i'm stuck on <laughs> i'm caught up on your uh dialectical dance i like that dialectical I, dance i, I, like I keep that. seeing that fucking bertel Ullman book in in oh. the bookstore and i'm just not brave enough to get it the dance of the dialectic it's like whoa how much of an asshole do I want to look like reading a book in public? I have a, is that is, has he got a book called that? I have a book. I think so. I have a book by Bertel Allman. Hang on, on alien. Did we? Did you? Did you take my recommendation and buy that book on alienation by Bertel Allman? No. no. I well, should. I don't know. What, I don't know what you, you. No, you probably shouldn't have done because <laughs> I find it very difficult. I've tried to read it a few times and and have gotten uh, good stuff out of it, but also okay. it's quite difficult. So yeah, fair enough. Maybe not. One day I we'll read to... some Allman. Maybe it's not that. Maybe. I did just double check. There is a book called The Dance of the Dialectic, and it is by him, thank God. Oh, I thought you made up the phrase yourself, but okay. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know he probably maybe, took it from me, yeah, quite maybe. frankly. Um, you're, you're, I mean, you're right to take that as the starting point, right? Like that mm. Rodney's thesis is um, these are not, it's not like Europe developed um, and Africa didn't, but like uh, there is a relationship between the two. One allows the other kind of thing. Um, yeah, they produce each other in in total tandem, right? Um, yeah, I think it's worth bringing up just right at the beginning. A long time ago, we read just as a point of comparison, we read from Eduardo Galeano's book, um, "Open Veins of Latin America." And I think it's worth just comparing these books really quickly because they are on the face both about primitive accumulation in their separate. Um, kind of spheres, right? Uh, Eduardo Galeano is talking about the Americas. He's talking about the colonization of the Americas and just the complete fucking genocide of the people who lived there. And um, Walter Rodney here is talking about Africa, right? And he's talking about the primitive accumulation and then just kind of like the higher phases of accumulation in Europe and the United States and their relationship to Africa. But I think that where I think I actually got on better with this book so far. And I think the reason for that is um open veins of latin americanism is is very passionate and it's very like it grabs you you know by the head and it's just like a million fucking people died in one goddamn silver mine this was all so much worse than you think uh it's all so ongoing it's terrible and then he kind of throws in on top of that the kind of primitive accumulation stuff which we talked about back then um and this this book is also quite passionate but i think that rodney is writing from a place of like deep frustration with what was then and still is 
kind of like current academic research into the topic of African underdevelopment. And he's really just, he wrote this book to just be like, no, actually, here's all of the, you know, correct research. Here's how everything actually happened. It's not as simple as, you know, uh, the Africans were just, you know, hillbilly nobodies and they just got totally taken advantage of uh, by the much more advanced white race of the Europeans. But then he says it's also not as simple as, um, you know, the slave trade came in and decimated Africa, leaving nothing in its wake. He was like, you kind of need to understand, obviously, it's not like a middle ground thing, but he's saying like, when you do your research, you see that we find a quite developed continent in Africa, one that was kind of actually on par with um, certain levels of Europe around the kind of transition to capitalism. Um, and we see this kind of, again, dialectical movement of um, unequal trade and domination and exploitation that really led to um, the ongoing underdevelopment, as he says, of Africa. Um, and it's quite good. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you... you, you... Um, you point out the crux of the nature of this dialectical relationship, right? In the sense that um, it wasn't that Europe was already developed and it came along and sort of subjugated um, uh, a continent that was in no position to resist it or um, had no way of relating to it, which in, in, in some ways maybe is true of the relationship between sort of like um, Portuguese and Spanish um colonizers in south america or it's definitely the way galliano presents it i think um but there is a relationship or there is a the, the nature of the dialectic is one of development and it's a developmental period that takes five or six hundred years right like the, the the time period covered by the chapters we read today goes all the way from 14 15 14 14 when the portuguese first uh, land on the west coast of Africa, all the way through to 1960, which is sort of Rodney's supposed end to the colonial period. Um, and there are ways in which um, Europe has some advantages in this process, and there are some ways in which they were actually, in some respects, quite similar. Um, one of the really interesting things that I felt felt reading this book or one of the interesting things about this book and i'm interested to see how you felt about it was um the use of sort of like the language of marxist modes of production that there is quite um there's there is a degree of like an evident um teleology that's sort of somewhat implicit in the argument that rodney's making um and and it's that's not. I don't think that's just a. This is the way history played out through these phases. There is a certain sense that um, history was always in t going to play out in that way. Um, so he does talk quite a lot about um, sort of the the development of certain um, groupings in Africa living under a mode of production that's communalistic and there's a degree to which certain uh kingdoms or um, nations have developed into uh pseudo feudal um forms of relation forms of class relation um and one of the really interesting things about this was i mean there wasn't enough detail in this book and it would have been possible for him to put this detail in this book and something that i'd really love to go back on is uh, finding some of the nuances between 
um, sort of African feudalism in quotation marks and then the feudalism in its European mold. Um, but what's really interesting is when I think it comes down to it, the real crux of the difference between the two from the start, from 1450 or whatever, is that Europe is on the cusp of transition into capitalism um, and Africa isn't. And it seems from what I've gleaned from reading this is that uh, Rodney's position is that when you come down to it, that was the real important difference. That was the thing that um, gave Europe the advantage, I suppose. And there were some some real material technological things that came along with that. But there is a sort of like mode of production causal connection that he's pointing out. Yeah, there's a bit of there's definitely some teleology going on here with some kind of like old school Marxist beliefs about, you know, first you have this, then you get capitalism, then you can have socialism once everything's developed. And there's also some, I think what I was alluding to earlier, some real old school beliefs on development and what development actually means. I originally suggested to you that we do the classic thing where we read the first and last chapter of the book. But when I started reading the first chapter of the book, which is called some questions on development with the subheadings, what is development and what's under development? I was kind of a bit put off by it because the way that he defines development is the ability of a given society to dominate nature. And the more that you dominate nature and kind of bend it to your will, the more developed you are, right? And you can see one of, for you know, some reasons that he's doing that. He gives examples of when the slave trade depopulates certain places, then the tsetse fly moves in, and then that completely depopulates it because it makes people have to get out of those regions, et cetera, et cetera. So he kind of has this like nature's creeping back in because people lose the ability to kind of like do development or whatever. But I mean, I, you know, I don't think that's like a definition. I understand where he's coming from. I don't think that's a definition of development that we'd be particularly comfortable with. And I think I have a similar feeling towards the teleology of his kind of like historical analysis. But I think in his defense, it's hard not to think something like that when you're doing so-called like third world developmental and underdevelopmental analysis, because it's like from where he's standing, you'd look around and be like, why the fuck don't we have any of the stuff that they have in the first world? You know, and you'd be like, okay, we need to industrialize first. We need to, you know, take things under our own uh, control. We need to have industry here. We need to be self-sufficient. And then we can kind of do socialism. Um, you know, the merits of that, I think, are up for debate. I do think it kind of seeps into his historical analysis in maybe a bit of a negative way. But also, I, in the concrete analysis, I kind of find myself having a hard time disagreeing with him about like – you know, the different, um, just about the differences between not first contact, obviously, but like this contact around the 15th century between Europe and Africa, um, and how that related to their kind of social relations as well, and what that meant for both societies. Um, yeah, it's interesting. There was something else that I wanted to say about, about all of that. Oh, I think, I, and the thing as well, just going on, last thing I'll say on that is that at first I was like, even just the title of this book, I was like, how Europe as a whole underdeveloped the continent of Africa as a whole. And I was like, well, surely you need some more nuance in that. But then it's like, you know, because I was like, are we are we really going to compare the societies of, you know, Tunisia or somewhere in North Africa to like what happened in Angola 
or to what happened in, you know, what's now Nigeria, right? I was like, it'll be interesting to see how he does that. And then you, you know, this shows my ignorance on the topic. It's like, oh, I see, I see why he's doing that because it really was a continent-wide system and the continent as a whole really was underdeveloped in much the same way. He gets into a bit of nuance about um, East Africa and kind of using that as kind of like a control group for his historical analysis, but we'll get to that. But yeah, I think I definitely had some of the same feelings as you. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a way you could rephrase the title of this book, which is like um, how capitalism used Africa as an externality, um, totally as an as an input to its development, kind of thing. A necessary um, input, which is nef- one of the most fascinating yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, because he'll basically make he makes an interest. Okay, we'll get on to this later, but he makes <laughs> but, a really fascinating point about like capitalism was almost on its last legs immediately, <laughs> right? And it needed Africa, so. Yeah, but we'll get to that. Well, yeah, I guess there's different ways of looking at that. Right? Either it, it needs it because it's on its last legs or because that's just the nature of capitalist development. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess that also points to some of what you were pointing out before about the difference between the Galliano book and this one, where there's a certain like moral horror that exists in the the sort of like Eduardo Galliano's description of um, colonization and genocide in South America, which is legitimate, right? And you could have a similarly legitimately um, moralized and horrific description. And there are parts of this which are pretty horrific to read. Um, but also there is, I think, in this, that element of like, there's an extent to which these is just modes of production playing out. There is a sort of like slightly anti-human side of this where it's just like, this is a necessary capitalist process, you know? Like, um not to say that it's good or bad or neutral, but just like there is a slightly um, amoral way yeah. to look at this in, from a theoretical standpoint, I suppose. He, he definitely doesn't focus on individual agents of European capitalism a whole lot. Agency is kind of almost entirely taken out of this, even when he discusses a lot of like African nations and kingdoms. Um, but yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. I, I, say, I say we get into... Um, the history of it all because i think it's necessary to kind of trace trace it a little bit like he does so the first the first chapter is called africa's contribution to european capitalist development um the pre-colonial period so he's going to basically be discussing how africa became this externality this necessary externality to be exploited dominated and just completely brutalized um before colonization right and he makes a point where he's like if you're going to talk about you know connections and trade between Africa and um, Europe in this time period, you're going to be talking about the slave trade because that's what it was basically, right? And to begin it, he gives you all of the horrors of the slave trade. He talks about how many millions of people um, were transported uh, to the new world. Um, He talks about how there's up to like a 20% mortality rate on the boats Uh, He kind of goes, this is his first time going against a lot of bourgeois white scholars as saying, you know, trying to say, well, only like a million people were uh, bought over on the boats. And he's like, well, actually, it might have been more like 100 million. This is kind of one of those moments like in the Galliano where he hits you with a number where you just can't fathom and you can't understand, especially because you're always told in school that Africa, oh, there, there probably weren't that many people there anyways, and you know, they definitely weren't that developed, and he just throws all of that out the window as just bourgeois racist ideology. But to set it all up, he says that there were several objective conditions of the slave trade, um, beginning in kind of like the 1400s, mid-1400s, 
And he says that there were three things, right? There was the mass death and genocide of Native Americans in both South and uh, North America, um, which basically led to no labor force at all being available for European colonies. So they needed to figure that out. Um, on top of that, there was a very small European population relatively that couldn't just be plucked up and bought over to the colonies, despite capitalist best efforts. We talked about this when we talked about American history, early American history, right? But how a lot of poor workers were literally just kidnapped and bought to America as indentured servants. But they couldn't all be, and there definitely wasn't enough to exploit all of its resources. And then the third thing is that the population of Africa, specifically West Africa, um, was used to, as he says, disciplined labor and um, settled agriculture. And they also, this isn't really in there, but, you know, you could probably also throw in animal husbandry as one of the reasons that they weren't as affected by um, European disease and stuff like that, as in um, the Americas where everybody just died immediately, right? Um, and so, yeah, those kind of set up the very beginning of this, as we say, the dialectical dance between development and underdevelopment. And it begins on an incredibly gruesome note, um, the relationship of Europe to Africa. Yeah, and it's you're you're right to start it with a position of like European demand, right? There is a there are certain material economic circumstances that um, drive the beginning of this kind of this this process of um, the transatlantic slave trade, but also like um, European trade more broadly, right? He describes um, a sort of almost like triangular process of um, ships transporting. Um, captured slaves to Af to uh, North America, but then ships transporting um, processed goods, whether they're things that have been mined in South America or grown in plantations in North, and, um, North America, transporting those to Europe, and then also a process of transporting consumer goods from Europe to Africa. Um, he makes an interesting point that this isn't, this isn't um, international trade. This is European trade done on an international scale. Um, there, he suggests he says that like um, the Africans with whom the Europeans are trading um, have no conception of the full scale of the sort of like the pro the trade that's taking place. Um, but one of the crucial things to point out is something that you've already indicated is that. Um, there's an extent to which this didn't decimate Africa. I mean, it was a massive setback, and in a minute we'll presumably get on to talking about the ways in which this did relate directly to um, a process of underdevelopment, underdevelopment where Africa was held back. But at the same time, um, there were there were nations and kingdoms in Africa that survived this. They were ones that weren't subject to um slavery at all there were ones that um participated in the slave trade by um capturing slaves through the process of war and then trading them with europeans there were um and participated in the process of trade by trading for um european produced consumer goods that were in demand um and all of this was a process that continued in various different forms for basically hundreds of years. Um, 
which had an ongoing detrimental effect on what Rodney is suggesting would have otherwise been a natural development of um, economic relations in Africa through a process of increasing scale, something similar that happened in, in Europe uh, and other parts of the world that developed into capitalism or different forms of capitalism, um, which was prevented from happening in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he says that I'm just going to read a bit where he says where he says um, to explain this, he says it's clearly ridiculous to assert that contacts with Europe built or benefited Africa in the pre-colonial period. And he's saying that because a lot of scholars still do say that. Right. It's like, well, sure. You know, a lot of fucking libs say this now, too. It's like, yeah, the slave trade was bad. But, you know, contact with Europe, you know, it did give them some good things. And it's like, yeah, okay, trains. that's Trains, trains. Yeah. Wow. Trains so that they could be exploited better. Wow. Thanks I a mean, lot. There is a portion of this where he talks about that process of building infrastructure. And obviously, mm-hmm. it's all just about extracting resources. It's not exactly. Right. And the it's like, this is what happened in Honduras. It's like when the, in Guatemala, when the United Fruit Company left, there's ripped up all of the fucking train tracks because they were like, fuck you, dude. Anyway, he goes on to say, nor does it represent reality to suggest, as some often do, that the slave trade swept Africa like a bushfire, leaving nothing standing. The truth is that a developing Africa went into slave trading and European commercial relations as into a gale force wind, which shipwrecked a few societies, set many others off course, and generally slowed down the rate of advance. However, to pursue the metaphor further, it must be noted that African captains were still making decisions before 1885, though already forces were at work, which caused European capitalists to insist on and succeed in taking over command. So he's he's putting agency basically, you know, back into the hands of Africans is basically saying, you know, he's not making the argument that you also hear a lot of people do, which is, well, you know, you know who sold the captives to the Europeans? It was Africans as well. So you can't blame Europe entirely. It's like, okay, well, that's also clearly fucking bullshit. But he's also saying that there was agency involved, right? Exactly as you're saying, there were some African nations that participated in the slave trade. There were some that didn't. There were some that weren't involved at all. There were some that went to war with Europe and some that were destroyed and some that were partially successful. It's much more complicated than just saying, you know, Europeans came in, did this, destroyed the continent. Um, It's kind of like a, it's a slowing down of development, right? And it's also not fair to say that Africa just wasn't technologically developed at all anywhere. He goes through and talks about a number of kingdoms that were like hugely advanced, right? With their, with different, with civil services, with standing armies, with massive trade networks, with things like this, with even the concept of a nation beginning to form specifically in kind of East Africa. Um, he just talks about that there were a couple things that West African kingdoms specifically were not... Uh, up to this up to snuff with europe at right and those two technological things were guns and boats basically mm-hmm. and those were kind of the crux for um the kind of technological domination of africa mm-hmm. but not 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 from the outset right in the sense that um i don't know whether europe would have been inclined to try and conquer all of africa in 1450 um but what Rodney's saying here is they couldn't have done it even if they'd wanted to. And that they, that basically all they were able to do very early on was colonize little um, coastal areas, uh, set up trading points, um, make some ingress in land. But um, there was, they basically didn't have the capacity to conquer Africa in its totality in a way that they would go on to do in the colonial era. Um, 
And instead, there was this very complicated process of trade that we've just sort of described that took over. Um, might just go through some of the ways in which um, he talks about it uh, halting African development. Uh, and obviously, the major one is just like Africa didn't have a growing population during this period of time, right? Like other parts of the world, um, the population was growing in Europe, the population was growing in North America, the population was growing. Um, he quotes some fi- some figures that suggest that African population was um, stagnating. And the people that were being taken were largely sort of able-bodied workers, both men and women who would have gone on to have children and lives and families and contribute to that development of the population, but also contribute a really important part to a potential growing workforce um, that were that just didn't exist that that wasn't allowed to develop it's one of these things that he's suggesting that happens as a natural part of the development of feudalism right you get like um more and more um a process of greater exploitation of the productive capacity of the land that it happens in direct relationship to the growth in the population. That's what he's sort of suggesting happened in Europe. And he's suggesting that wasn't allowed to happen in Africa because of um, the slave trade. Um, he also talks about how the trade in slaves came to sort of dominate the relationship between um, various groups in Africa as well. Like the there wasn't a development of... Um, trade between groups and kingdoms in Africa because there was this relationship of um, war and um, exploitation of your neighbours and capturing slaves to trade with Europeans in exchange for uh, European consumer goods that were really in high demand. Um, And so the sort of slave trade came to dominate international I suppose that's the right way of putting it, relationships between different nations in Africa, right? And so you didn't get an, an otherwise potentially normal quote-unquote development of um, trading and market relations. Um, and then because there were all these sort of like European-produced consumer goods that were being brought in, it also led to this process where there wasn't a demand for uh, development in manufacturing. Either you just imported and bought European consumer goods, which you just say were like the poorest quality ones, like the the Europeans would just offload all of the um, not particularly good quality um, consumer goods on Africa that they couldn't trade somewhere else. But it also meant that there wasn't this development of uh, local production of these things. And in tandem, there wasn't a production, wasn't a development of um, greater technological understanding of how to improve um, production. And so either um, African markets were full of consumer goods from Af- from Europe or what they continued to have is um, small artisanally produced um, consumer goods with there being no pressure for that productive process to be developed um, in, uh, in a way which would represent economic advance, I suppose, for Rodney. Yeah, and a lot of those consumer goods were exactly that. They were consumer goods that were being traded back to Africa, right? It was like 
okay, we'll take all of these captives. And in return, it's not like Europe was going to give them like a fleet of the best ships or guns or anything like that. They were mainly going to give them things that were kind of like curiosities, things that rulers would be like, oh, that's, yeah, like textiles, things like that, right? Things that, as you're saying, aren't particularly useful to like um, teleological development, which is what we like around here, right? It's also worth, I think, going through the opposite of the dialectic of that, Dan, which is how the slave trade uh, influenced capitalist development. Um, uh, one of my notes is just New England in general, partially because of my distaste <laughs> for New England, but also because uh, I think he quotes W.B. Du Bois here, where he's, he says something along the lines of like New York and Boston and Portland, were, Portland meaning on the East Coast, were um, built up and financed partially if not mainly by the slave trade specifically new york he makes the same point about liverpool was just kind of like some backward i'm not gonna say hick town but i'll say hick town back in the day um nantes as well bristol of course boston um so it led to this massive rise in um in capital concentrated around these seaside ports and villages and things like that um that would become some of the biggest most powerful wealthiest cities on the planet um obviously this led to a rise in um demand for coinage the development of capitalism so there needed to be more gold and this is of course you know where kind of the galliano comes in about the silver and gold mines in central and south america which also use slave labor of course and then also gold in africa itself um are and finally our old friend the British textile industry, which we talked a lot about this, and we kind of alluded to the, its relationship to the slave trade when we read Fossil Capital. But um, that kind of, you know, the first massively uh, proto-capitalist industry, the British textile industry, was um, financed by capital from the slave trade, right? It was all money that had been made and then reinvested into upping labor productivity. And that's where you got kind of like technological advancements, you know, uh, you know, steam engine, those kind of things. That was all kind of a direct result of the exploitation of Africa. So Rodney's doing a really good thing here where he's basically saying all of this um, surplus and capital and just wealth in its rawest form were exported from Africa um, and then eventually capitalized on to eventually develop capitalism it was basically like rocket fuel for capitalism right and at that time there's a fucking paramedic going by and at that time it was exactly what capitalism needed right to kind of it was that shot in the arm here's a whole new continent to exploit that's just you know ripe for exploitation and here's a massive labor force um that you have the power to just brutalize and control and that kind of led to um you know it's kind of primitive accumulation in its most quantitative form uh, to the development of the kind of global international capitalism that we know now, right? Mm, yeah, I, re I really appreciated that uh, anecdote about Liverpool, actually, just in the context of what's often said about the relationship between the development of the Manchester cotton and or the textiles industry and its relationship to um, cotton growing in Deep South, right? And that, that's, and by extension, that processes relationship to slavery. But um, the very idea that the technological, the industrial infrastructure of the northwest of England was built up by 
first building up the port of Liverpool with it as a centre for the trading of slaves, even before um, it could then be used for the importation of cotton from South America. Um, it speaks to a trend that um, Rodney points out in this book quite a lot, which is something that's some, somewhat di- difficult to tap into, somewhat ephemeral, right? Is just this general sense that um, development in some ways is this sort of constantly expanding process whereby or an exponential process almost whereby um it's not necessarily clear concrete concrete things you can point to but rather it's things like that where it's a, a development of a technology or a development of an infrastructure or the development of a certain organizational relationship or um or yeah some kind of some some extended externality from uh the concrete relationship of ships going to Africa and enslaving people um, but as an extension of the wealth that was being extracted or the or the labor force that was being extracted and then that's relationship to the wealth that was being created with that labor all over the world and uh, funneled primarily to Europe um, which as you describe it sort of functions as this portion of the process of primitive accumulation that allowed for the development the early development of capital that was there was then invested in uh the early phases of the industrial revolution i mean he quotes james watt as like uh praising some slave trader investors who invested in the development of um his early engines right Um, (laughs) and that sort of process is 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 uh writ large across the narrative in this book um I mean, I, I'm reticent to say this because um, I haven't read a huge amount of Wallerstein, so I don't know whether to <laughs> now frame we're it as like a Wallerstein world systems <laughs> theory. But I mean, obviously, this is very reminiscent of the argument that's put forward by uh, Jason Moore in, in the book of his that we read, um, whereby um, here the sort of the the population of africa but also the um the populations and um environmental material resources of south america function as a necessary we've been describing as a necessary externality right these are parts of the world where capitalism isn't necessarily functioning or developed yet uh but the the capitalist powers in europe are extending their influence and um through brutal force basically extracting resources that then become a necessary part of the inputs for capitalism so it's how the rest of the world is drawn into um the development toward capitalism over a really protracted period right like i feel like there is an extent to which the the sort of there's basically a two stage um uh partition of the history in these chapters that we read right there's the there's the long very long period between first contact um or the first development of the trading relationship with africa in the 1450s or 14 teens or what have you all the way through to 1885 with the sort of scramble for africa and the decision to move from um this very one-sided european dominated trading relationship to actually one that becomes 
uh, a process of colonization and a total takeover of the continent. Um, and what that transition represents, I think, is the transition from these parts of the world being what in this Jason Moore language was going to call an externality to then becoming part of the capitalist world um, and different rules and imperatives come into play at that point for the European capitalists. Yeah, necessarily, which I think we'll get to in a yes. sec. It, it, at one point in this, he just he goes through like every famous street name in Liverpool and it's just like, these are all named after slave traders. <laughs> and it's just like, fuck, Jesus, that's so brutal. <laughs> Have you been to the slave museum up there in Liverpool? Have, uh, no. Okay. Auxiliary statements field trip. Next okay. time both of us happen to be up north. I'm not sure <laughs> when that would be, but sounds like a fun day out. We might just have to do it. Yeah. Another one thing that is, I think, very important to touch on before we get to the um, bits of this about colonialism is that this is where the ideology of white supremacy really starts to get enshrined into capitalism. And a lot of like bookish Marxists will kind of write that off as ideology, you know, and be like, it's bad, of course, but look at the material conditions and relations. That's what's vital to understanding, you know, the way the world works. Um, he makes a point here that the ideology of white supremacy that was built up then was not only necessary, obviously, to keep the slave trade going, right? You needed to have some kind of ideology that lit justified literally like, you know, enslaving whole families, right? But it was necessary in the kind of buildup to the colonial period and to now for the international division of labor, right? It, it eventually, and we'll talk about the international division of labor in a bit, but it eventually leads to an ideology of well, certain people born in certain parts of the world do the manufacturing. Certain people are just born to do the farming. And, you know, I sit at my computer all day. That's what we were born to do in this country, right? And this is where this this comes from. It's a necessary ideology. It's like one of the first things that we read and talked about, Ellen Meekson's Woods book, um, all about the origin of capitalism, named the origin of capitalism. Um, she talks about the necessity of an ideology that formed fucking loud out there today the necessary the necess the necess necessity fucking hell of the ideology that formed around colonization from um not john stuart mill um who am i thinking of about private property i was gonna say john stuart mill is it john stuart mill it could be john stuart mill no it no it was um uh the guy who talked about ownership comes from who's giving things exchange value basically was that mill i'm gonna have to look it up a, a bookish white guy that talked about the necessity of, well, we're actually going to be improving this land, so we should own it, right? And how this that is a justification for appropriating America yeah. from the the native population because and they also for the land exactly, and also for uh, the enclosures, right? Oh, mm. well, the wealthy capitalist is going to be doing much more with the land than the silly three field system with the commons. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing with the ideology of white supremacy, right? It's like. You know, well, the natives weren't using Cuba for anything good, so we might as well just take it over, right? So very grim. And it, it ties into – he has this particularly brutal quote to end this chapter about My Lai because that must have just happened when he wrote this about the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. And it's something along the lines of, you know, whenever something like the My Lai massacre happens – people are so the bourgeois class is so quick to clutch its pearls and be like a massacre by america in my capitalist modernity and he's like listen the brutality 
around all of the different melees that happen every single day originated in the enslavement of the Africans and the genocide of um, the natives of North and South America, right? And we'll get to kind of how that all kind of comes home to roost a bit later on. But um, yeah, particularly what, what I appreciate about that section is that he uses the opportunity to debunk and also point out or make preeminent the the economic compulsion. It's not like, it's not that, I mean, white Europeans may have been racist from the off, but it's not that they were racist from the off and that's what compelled them to go exactly. and enslave uh, black Africans, but rather there was an economic necessity to take that action. And then proceeding from that, there is the development of an ideology which backs it up. Um, and what's interesting and horrifying is that um, the ideology can take a very long time to develop, but then um, and it, then it's with us. And I'm, I'm, for a very long time, right, it's impossible, very difficult to erase the scars of that process and um, remove the sort of like into in institutional legacy of that racism from um our society particularly yeah. as we continue to live under capitalism which is the ultimate culprit for that absolutely and i it it's, couldn't be more pertinent than what we're seeing with a lot of the discourse so to speak around palestine all of the pearl clutching that goes on about why no the, the Israeli state couldn't be dropping the equivalent of a nuclear bomb's worth of, ex, of explosives on an area a fraction of the size of Los Angeles with, you know, two million people living in it, right? That couldn't, that's too brutal. I thought history was over. We witnessed the end of history. What's all this, right? It all goes back to this, right? Not, not great. Um, maybe I should tell you about the, the, the most egregious piece of ignorance that this reading this revealed <laughs> to me. Let's hear um, it. Which, 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 it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not, uh, basically it's just that um, I was quite taken aback by the putting the date of 1885 as the beginning of colonialism. Mm. And that, almost like that hard distinction. And now this is just piece of history that I don't really know about. Right. I sort of heard the phrase scramble for Africa. Um, and I knew that there were certain significant wars fought in North Africa in the end of the 19th century, right? It's a significant part of our British historical mythos or whatever. Um, but I was just, I'm just pretty I'm shocked, but to, to have the colonial period be um, made so short, I suppose, less than a hundred years, really, but also to have its instantiation be something that is so thoroughly modern, I guess. Now, obviously, it has its legacy in um, the hundreds of years of uh, enslavement uh, of Africans, and also the sort of like systematic disadvantaging of African development, as we've seen pointed out. Um, but to, but for me to to sort of face the reality of it being a very modern phenomena, um, and I, I'm what something that I'm I'm always I'm always interesting. I always find it very interesting to discover um, because it's very easy to imagine capitalism as being very old, and also for me it's very easy for me to fall into the trap of 
that thing which we so often argue against in this podcast, but I also, I still fall into the trap of it as being like capitalism as a thing that emerged into the world in its totality. Um, and this is a reminder of capitalism as being an ongoing process of development. And um, there was a necessary or there was a particular phase of capitalist development, which um, is defined by a particular type of exploitative relationship to uh, con colonial holdings in particularly in Africa, but in the Far East and to some extent, um, I guess, parts of the Caribbean and South America as well. Yeah. I mean, just when he starts saying, oh, here are some of the companies that were involved in not just the slave trade, but the, you know, colonial appropriation of Africa. And it's just like, Barclays. It's, Barclays like, oh, wait. it's like wait. And like... <laughs> yeah, I know Unilever. It's like everything I own is Unilever. It's like, oh my God. He dedicates a very long part of these of this section to discussing Unilever, and it's grim, but we'll get there. Um where's a good place to start talking about colonialization, colonization, do you think? Is it maybe to talk about I was I took quite a bit away from his discussion about the state and the role of the state in the colonies. I think that's probably just because of last episode's reading. Mm -hmm. um, I, I suppose maybe if there's a way to get us there, we could just say that a lot of the colonial trading companies that sprouted up were directly involved in the slave trade. So it isn't just like there's not this hard distinction between here were the slavers and the slave traders and here were the you know colonial trading companies and then we usher in this new – you know. Uh, this new era of African exploitation. Maybe this episode, I think, might be a little long because maybe actually what we need to do is talk about now that I'm saying this out loud why slavery stopped and yeah, why that it was. was... My, that was my first instinct. Hey, to, go for because it. It's something, <laughs> go because, for well, it. <laughs> I mean, it's something that I'm still trying to wrestle with and understand, right? Like, I don't have a very good explanation as to why um, slavery became. Um, something which was in essence a fetter on the continued development of capitalism after a certain point other than to try and delve into a kind of like a uh, very bookish and academic description of um, how I understand the relationship of capitalism to the development of the labor process to be kind of thing like the um, the requirement to develop the labor process to find efficiencies in it um is a very nat is a is a, a necessary constituent fundamental component of what capitalism is is a certain relationship to um labor and improving the productivity of labor through technological advance and through um development of skills within the worker to make them be more exploitable and therefore lead to greater uh, profitability. Uh, my understanding would be to say that um, something about the relationship of master to slave doesn't allow for that kind of development of the labor process, I suppose. Did you, did you get the fundamentals of an argument that sounds like that from this book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I, he makes a point that I think this is the clearest that it can be made where he says that slavery is incredibly useful for permanent accumulation. You know, we can also alter that to maybe even just say it's in our timeline, at least a necessity for primitive accumulation. That's at least how it played out. 
Um, but when it comes to higher accumulation, the kind of capitalist accumulation that we all know and love, you can't use slavery because it almost gets into like a distinction between fixed capital and variable capital, right? Where it's like variable capital, wage labor is this thing that you can constantly exploit, you know? And when you get to a certain point, you're not doing just extending the working day stuff. You're actually trying to find these labor efficiencies and time-saving devices and actually wage labor kind of weirdly paradox, not paradoxically, counterintuitively um, lends itself to capitalist accumulation much more. There's an argument that I find myself getting really frustrated with a lot of the time on the left, which is about like, was chattel slavery capitalist? And it's like, yeah, of course it fucking was. Like, it so obviously was. But you need to understand this distinction. Otherwise, you're going to get confused. Because if you don't understand this distinction, you're going to go, well, why isn't everybody just a slave now? It's because it's not actually profitable, right? It's kind of like an investment that you look after, a slave, that is, that you look after and you feed. And eventually, this is really grim, but eventually they die and you just have to go out and get more. And even though you're not actually paying them, you're paying for their upkeep, you're paying for all of this stuff. And there's not really much of an incentive for the slaves other than just brutality and violence, which will only get you so far to be more productive. And on top of that, like slaves had to be given just in a quantitative sense, because there were a lot really shitty tools, right? Um, And that held back productivity as well. But I mean, to go back to the was chattel slavery capitalism or not, I think chattel slavery is clearly not solely a capitalist form of labor, but it's definitely a type of capitalist labor, but it's not the type of capitalist labor, right? Like capitalism will always tend towards in the long run, just wage labor. And I mean, obviously you can go through and you can make distinctions about stuff like household labor, um, about the different types of wage labor, about that there is still slavery in the world, right? Um, But capitalism on the whole, I think, does tend towards wage labor because that's the thing that it can continue to exploit and continue to find efficiencies for, right? Um, And it kind of also reminds me of the distinction between in fossil capital when he was talking about these little colonies that were set up um, around water-powered textile mills or wind-powered textile mills where they had to be out in the middle of nowhere and the capitalists had to pay for churches and schools and cafeterias and all the houses and all these different things. Whereas when they finally um, figured out steam power, they could just plop it in the middle of a town. And if somebody didn't like it, fuck off. We'll just go get the next guy who wants to come in and work, right? So it's kind of a similar thing going on there, but that was my understanding at least. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I I am... um when I, I approach that question of was chattel slavery capitalism, I'm really pleased to have the language of externalities as a way to discuss that. And absolutely yeah. quite pleased to have that, um, that version of the history of the development of capitalism, which has there be parts of the world that are external to a capitalist core, but have a relationship of extraction. Um, and, I suppose in talking about this process of the movement toward colonialism in relationship to Africa as, as depicted in this book. And then at that point as well, a tandem movement away from slavery and movement toward um, various forms of wage labor. It's sort of like to reinsert what I was saying before about, is this a part of a process of uh, Africa moving fundamental position within relationship to global capitalism. Um, and then we could probably say that it is right because what we, what we see um, 
as the beginning phase of this process of colonialization. I mean, obviously there is the process of um, actual violent capture, but both the divvying up of Africa by the European powers and then the actual process of going to war with these various places um, and setting up the various types of colonial administration and states that you were talking about. And I'd like to get on to talking about that, definitely. Um, the first real point of distinction is to say, well, okay, I think what seems apparent is the labor of Africans suddenly became very useful to European capitalism, not in America or in South America or in the Caribbean, but in Africa itself. There were now resources in Africa that the the sort of like coming back to the dialectic of relation of development right like rodney will say the europe and africa although they had various different there were differences between the two of them in 1450 or whatever there were certain degrees of similarity as well but this process of development of europe and by dialectical relationship but under development of africa had led to the point where Europe was now technologically advanced enough to fully conquer Africa in a way that it couldn't before. And what that granted it was access to all of the, initially all of the natural resources um, that were there that could now be exploited and required the labor of Africans to complete. Um, and what we, what we see therefore is a, um, a transition toward wage labor and the employing of Africans under horrible poverty wages um, to to mine these resources, to grow these cash crops. Um, that doesn't necessarily answer the question as to why they didn't continue with slavery, right? Because obviously the growing of cash crops took place in America um, with slaves and the mining of uh, silver happened in South America with the use of slaves. Um, but I think maybe it's sort of part of the process of um, that sort of development toward the core of uh, mm. the African economy. Yeah. And it's also one one last thing, and then we can move on to the second part finally, which is <laughs> colonialism. But I think that this brings up something that we kind of tripped up and found a bit uh, difficult to deal with in the Eduardo Galeano, which is the idea of primitive accumulation. Because in that primitive accumulation is painted purely as a quantitative thing, right? It's that all of this gold went into the coffers of the like, <laughs> he paints them as just like sicko inbred Spaniards to just fritter away on like mansions and stuff, right? But then, you know, the British, they came along and they were like, well, oh, Protestantism, we will invest this uh, back into the system and use it as capital. And I think that there is a confusion uh, a lot of the times when primitive accumulation gets discussed, that it is solely a quantitative thing, right? But um, that can kind of lead, I think, to maybe bending the stick a bit too much in the other direction. Like when you read when you read those last couple chapters of Capital and Marx talks about primitive accumulation and about the origin of capitalism, he's very clear in that he's pretty much just discussing like. Um, the qualitative changes that took place in primitive accumulation. And he is kind of talking about primitive accumulation as a accumulation of relationships, right? Of social relationships about 
how capitalists became capitalists and how wage workers became wage workers. And that's primitive accumulation. But he also does make space for talking about the quantitative aspect of it, which is the gold coming from South America, which is the slaves, which is, you know, all of the different appropriations and so-called externalities to the capitalist system. And I think that that is still really important when we talk about primitive accumulation, because at the end of the day, it got us the capitalism that we have now, and it wouldn't have been possible otherwise, or it just would have taken a hell of a lot longer. Like, how would the colonization of the Americas have gone were it not for slave labor from Africa, right? Like it probably would have taken a whole hell of a lot longer if it was even possible because in, you know, in New England, they were kind of just trying to just bring over poor German people from the slums of Berlin and from London and all these different, you know, poor places. And if that's all they were doing, it would have taken a lot longer and the colonies would have been a lot more poor. So there is this kind of relationship when we talk about primitive accumulation about it being both a qualitative shift in social relations, but also you do need to focus on the appropriation that took place because you can't discuss colonialism or even 21st century capitalism without discussing how Barclays got all its money, you know what I'm saying? Or how Unilever, you know, became the fucking massive corporation that it did now. And you need to talk about kind of the quantitative aspect of it all, which is just money. There's just a shit ton of wealth coming out of this process being funneled directly into Europe, you know? So, yeah. All right. Should we talk, should we talk about the state? Oh yeah. Go for it. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's, as far as I can tell, he's making the argument here that, um, states became incredibly vital to maintaining and setting up colonialism. Obviously, that seems fairly clear, right? Because even though there were private enterprises going in and exploiting people during you know this whole process, it was the state that ensured uh, the correct conditions for massive unequal exploitation of African labor during this time, right? So this is after the slave trade, obviously. And he's saying that the role of the state can be split up into three things, which is protecting against foreign competition, right? Um, so, you know, Belgian capitalists wanted to maintain a monopoly on freight shipping coming out of the Congo. So there were laws that were set up so that only Belgians or a certain number of foreign companies could do shipping, but it was mainly just Belgians, right? It was also to arbitrate between the, 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 any given metropoles bourgeoisie, any of their capitalists, whenever they had disagreements, it would kind of come in and adjudicate. And this is all stuff that we still see the state do now. Right. Um, and then finally it would guarantee Broadly, the optimum conditions for exploitation, which is basically just to say force, a huge monopoly on force and, you know, massive policing. And this is the way that colonies were able to ensure that the, you know, laborers that they paid in the colonies could be paid infinitely less than their counterparts doing similar things in the metropole, right? Um, And just one last thing, too, on the protecting against foreign competition aspect of this. He makes an interesting point that he says that this ensured greater exploitation in the colonies because had competition been allowed within the colonies, this probably would have raised the prices for um, agricultural products that the peasants were growing right in these colonies, which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, so in more ways than one, the state, the various states involved with the colonization of Africa would be... um, ensuring the optimum conditions for African exploitation. Uh, One of the really interesting things about the relationship of the state in this context to me was in relation to um, 
the process by which it compelled people to begin working in this new way. Um, and it talks about various different ways and force is definitely one of them. Um, but also there's the relationship to taxation. And um, if you create a state and that state then taxes all sorts of different things, the, or, or rather the, the state then sets up loads of different taxes that um, impose themselves on the population in various different ways, the the population is then going to have to pay these taxes somehow. Okay, so you have to you, the state just demands that they have to pay the tax in whatever the state's currency is. How do you get the currency? Well, you have to go to work for a capitalist. You have to become a wage worker to be able to um, pay the taxes that are demanded of you by the state. Um, and it's one of the processes whereby um the populations of these colonized countries took up the role of being uh either waged workers there's a bit of a distinction there's the process of the transition to being wage workers primarily in um mining or other forms of exploiting natural resources like um the what would you do harvest tap for rubber, I suppose, is another important crop that's being um, extracted from Africa. And then the other side of that process is a process whereby um, former peasants are compelled to grow cash crops for export. Um, and they seem to be the two primary sort of like uh, working class populations that um, he's focusing on in this description. Yeah. And and this leads to even more contributions, you know, unwilling, obviously, more contributions to the development of capitalism, right? And there are a number of different things. I mean, he that what we alluded to earlier, his whole discussion about Unilever, right, as this company that um, during colonization really developed modern business practices, you know, setting up Unilever limited in i don't know i forget which countries it was but like unilever limited in england or something like that and then unilever limited in um the netherlands i think it was unilever at least if it wasn't hopefully my point is still made as a way of getting around taxes right and that this is a thing that modern corporations do that was learned during the um colonial times so that different you know corporations could exploit more efficiently right and so on that, he says that the composition of Unilever should serve as a warning that colonialism was not simply a matter of ties between a given colony and its mother country, but between colonies on one hand and the metropoles on the other. The German capital in Unilever joined the British in exploiting Africa and the Dutch in exploiting the East Indies. So he's, you know, he's saying that this eventually becomes a system in which it is colonies on one hand and metropoles on the other, which then leads to what we have now, which is the international division of labor, right? Because capital while it seeks safe havens in any given nation state, right, as its kind of national bourgeoisie will protect it and its own interests, it also doesn't really give a fuck. And that's why you have multinational corporations. Uh, it'll seek out, you know, obviously capital has no patriotism. It goes where it can make money, right? And this was kind of first learned um, in an attempt to exploit African labor more after the slave trade, you know? Yeah, it's almost like chronological development of this phase of capitalism right first it begins with a relationship between uh the congo and belgium or um tanzania and germany or i don't know south south africa and great britain 
Um, and then it becomes this process whereby more and more international corporations develop. Um, they're backed by uh, in other sort of like governmental institutions um, to have holdings and arms and points of production and extraction all over Africa in all sorts of different countries. Um, it even leads to the point whereby he's making a point later on that basically after the Second World War, when America becomes a sort of primary capitalist power in the world, um, the US seems paradoxically initially to be taking action which actively disadvantage it in relationship to Africa and seemingly um, advantage other European powers. Um, but he points out that like this is part of a process of the US becoming a sort of like world capitalist hegemon where the process that it's undertaking is no longer the maintenance of uh, the longevity of American capitalism in relationship to other parts of the world, but rather the longevity of global capitalism in its totality, particularly in the aftermath of the Second World War, where um, Europe's being decimated and um, the US is, through the Marshall Plan, doing these huge injections of capital into Europe to aid with the process of rebuilding. Uh, one of the really interesting things about this book was the the degree to which the Marshall Plan program also fixated on rebuilding the exploitative relationship between Africa and Europe. Um, one of those things that's always sort of like quite important to remember is the the post-war boom and therefore also the sort of development of the various European and North American welfare states. Um, always important to remember, I suppose, that the that development was able was possible only off the continuing existence of um, exploitative colonial relationships to Africa and other parts of the um, developing world. And it's also a way of him being like, you thought America was going to get off scot-free when we're talking about <laughs> African exploitation. He makes a point where he was like, Africa literally just paid back Britain's war debts to America, right? Because it was yeah. through African labor and African surplus that they were able to, you know, England had any fucking money at all to give back to America. Well, there's a point where you suggest that the, the justification for beginning to tax the colonial populations of um, Africa was to pay back the costs that it had, that the European powers had incurred in colonial colonizing yeah. them rather in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and he says that at a certain you can think about it in a certain way where it's just like because the taxation of the people who were colonized paid for the like repressive state apparatus that you know then did the taxation he was like they basically didn't put any fucking money into africa at all it just paid for itself it paid for its own exploitation incredibly grim um and you know he, he at one point in this he says something along the lines of whenever europe was in a mess they would always turn to africa intensify exploitation of labor and you know they'd turn to africa to get it out of its mess that it made right and to kind of, I guess, begin to get towards a like summary of this. This is the mess that it found itself in in colonizing the Americas. It killed everybody. So it needed a new labor force. It turned to Africa. 
you know, all the way up until literally World War II, where he's talking about how de Gaulle wouldn't have won if he didn't have all of the African soldiers fighting for his side against the Nazis, right? He's like, you're welcome, right? So every literally going up to World War II, talking about Africa or Europe finding itself in a mess and needing to be bailed out, un, you know, uh, against its will by Africa, right? Um, pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the more depressing stories in this, of which there are many, I suppose, is um, the history gives of the conflict in East Africa during the First World War, where you have um, armies of um, composed primarily of um, people from Africa fighting on both the side of the Germans and the British. Um, in a conflict in East Africa, which the um, colonial white population was increasingly unwilling to participate in. So in the end, you have uh, just a process of two armies of people from Africa fighting a wing of the First World War uh, for the sort of advancement of two different colonial interests. But... um, when no, nobody from those two European countries is actually participating in the conflict. Yeah, and on that too, when he talks about when Africa, when certain African nations finally would get their independence, how just immediately, you know, the day after that, like millions of pounds would go from, you know, so-called African banks to British banks, because all of these people, or, you know, Dutch banks, because all of these people, no matter how many generations those settlers had been there for, they always considered home to be Europe, right? And about that was just one last thing, just like the fruit company ripping up the train tracks in Guatemala, right? It's the same thing. It's as soon as you know their like their livelihoods is threatened, they all just get the fuck out of there and take all their wealth with them, right? Wealth that was created through exploiting black African labor. Um uh, what else? Anything we missed? What do you think? I, I, I'm wondering whether we should, as a point of wrapping up, we could circle back around to what you were saying before about um Rodney suggesting that colonialization is that basically at every point a anecdote to the general crisis of capitalism. Um, I mean the 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 version that he gives of that is that the subjugation um, of Africa through the process of colonialization and the huge extraction of wealth, um, although it primarily goes toward enriching the European European and North American capitalist classes. Um, one of the things a, a small portion of that does is also goes toward maintaining the standard of living of European and American workers in a process that for Rodney leads to their declining um, revolutionary consciousness, I suppose. Um, so for him, like the primary, primary contradiction of capitalism is the class relation and the process of colonization is used as a way to ameliorate that contradiction i suppose Um, yeah again i mean he talks about whenever europe or america needed to bail itself out of a crisis it turned to africa the welfare state was another one of those things in many countries funded by heightened exploitation of black african labor right or or, yeah i mean also there's the process there's a process whereby um the exploitation of the colonies was heightened during the the Wall Street crash and the the financial financial crash of the and the, the the depression of the thirties, um, 
the wages in Africa were cut and the demands on labor were increased. Um, so there's also an extent to which it's not just like that, the contradictory class relation, but also the unstable nature of the economic relationship and the, the, the declining rate of profit as well. Um, the crisis tendencies that are brought about by the unstable nature of the economic mode of production that is capitalism were also attempted to be ameliorated by um, sort of like heightened exploitation that took place under the colonial era or the imperial phase of capitalism, I suppose. Mm. And that's a really important point too, when we talk about the relationship between the working class and the capitalists of the metropole. You know, there's still a reason that, you know, you and I, Dan, are able to go to some fucking store and buy a pack of T-shirts for like 15 pounds, right? It's And it's, you know, different than if those shirts were made in the UK or in the United States, right? That price would be different. Um, and I think that oftentimes that is put forward as a right, – rightfully so, that's put forward, as you say, for a reason for declining um, or, you know, what has been declining – revolutionary potential of so-called like first world or metropole um, proletarians, right? But also I would say to counter that, um, because I do think that there are like a lot of populist movements have kind of used left-wing ideas of a certain type to then kind of be, to then kind of like justify ongoing exploitation of the international division of labor, right? And I think to a certain extent, if people are just following their best interests, you kind of would have to see like, well, yeah, a lot of first world like workers might not see it in their best interest to like destroy the sweatshops in Bangladesh or something like that, other than it's just being purely evil. And you think hoping that people have some sort of moral like core. But I think one last thing that I would like to bring up is one of the other things that um, the kind of dialectical relationship between Africa and European and American um, capitalism has given us is what our good friend Althusser might call repressive state apparatuses or as well as ideological state apparatuses. Because I mean, there's this idea of like chickens coming home to roost, right? And, you know, a kind of certain horror that people get when they find out that a lot of technologies for policing ghettos in America or for, you know, crowd control or for riot prevention that are used by police forces in the United States specifically, but also in Europe and other parts of the world, were developed in places like Israel, right? By the IDF or something like that. There's a certain kind of horror, right? Because it's like, whoa, people getting tear gassed, the shit kicked out of them by police, cops coming to people's houses and just killing them. That's something that happens somewhere else, right? And it, Rodney makes a really good point where he's like, all of this stuff comes home to roost. Eventually, all of the violence that metropoles unleash upon their colonies will come home because all of this repressive technology that is developed in the colonies by the metropole will come home to be used on the working class, no matter how many cheap shirts we can buy, right? And so it is very much in the working class of, you know, everywhere to want to overthrow capitalism, obviously. But I'm just going to read one last thing that talks about it. I just lost it. Where did it go? Where he kind of makes this point in a uh, particularly brutal way. Where is it? Yeah. So he says... Inside Europe itself, some specific and highly revealing connections can be found between colonialist behavior and the destruction of the few contributions made by capitalism to human development. For instance, Colonel von Lettau returned from leading the German forces in East Africa in World War I, and he was promoted to a general of the German army. And eventually, von Lettau was in command at the massacre of the German communists in Hamburg in 1918. 
That was a decisive turning point in German history, for once the most progressive workers had been crushed, the path was clear for the fascist deformation of the future. In brutally suppressing the Magi Magi War in Tanganyika, and in attempting genocide against the Herero people of Namibia, which is Southwest Africa, he makes the point, the German ruling class were getting the experience which they later applied against the Jews and against German workers and the progressives. And he goes on to say that the colonial that colonialism strengthened the the Western fucking Christ colonialism strengthened the Western European ruling class and capitalism as a whole in this way. And I think that that's a pretty brutal example that he uses of the Holocaust, right? But it's absolutely true. It's the violence that the metropole has, you know, inflicted upon its colonies for centuries, coming home to roost and being used against progressives, minorities, and different disenfranchised people. Um, in those same colonies. And, you know, that's something that I think is pretty important to put forward because obviously this violence is still used all over the world in different colonies, neo-colonies, whatever you want to call them. Um, and now is kind of, there is seemingly a kind of slow drawn out crisis of capitalism taking place before our eyes. We're seeing the return of this violence, right? As if this violence ever went anywhere as somebody that lives in the ghetto in LA, if it ever went anywhere, you know what I mean? But yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have nothing to say to that other than to acknowledge the, yeah, the truth of that situation, and it's um, it's brutal. But yeah, that the the growth in scapegoating, um, to cover for economic crisis, that's just always the tendency that occurs. Like capitalism falls into crisis, and um, you got to find somebody to blame. Yeah, exactly, and to blame them and use as an excuse to crush the progressive like sections of the working class. Mm. Good stuff. Obviously this wasn't going to have a happy ending, no. <laughs> but what are you going to do? Maybe one day we'll get back to finishing the last two chapters from this book. Yeah. First two, the last one. Um, but yeah, I think that honestly, these three chapters can be read as kind of like an aside, probably it's best to just read the whole fucking book, but as an aside to understand the kind of development of capitalism and its relationship with Africa, um, you could find worse stuff to read. I'll say mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I'm really pleased that you suggested this. I really enjoyed reading it. I do recommend mm -hmm. everybody go and have a look at it. Um, it's definitely influenced my thinking and complemented a lot of the things that we've read. So yeah, very worthwhile. I'm enjoying mm -hmm. it a lot. Good stuff. Now what we've got to do, Dan, is get off this call and figure out what the fuck out the next thing we're doing. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Um, we're done. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, see you Bye-bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.